0: Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. A lot of times when people talk about experiments, They're using experiment in kind of the the loose colloquial sense, oh, I'm going to experiment with a new hairstyle. That's not an experiment. We need comparison conditions. For me, the interesting bit is when
1: you start considering this from a behavioral perspective, understanding the various different biases and heuristics
0: that people are, are using. The strengths of experiments are they are the gold standard for determining causality. We know if we do our experiments properly that the actions that we took in the experiment definitely caused the outcome.
2: This show is sponsored by Verant. Verant helped the world's most iconic brands build enduring customer relationships by connecting work, data, and experiences across the enterprise. The variant customer engagement cloud platform draws on the latest advancements in AI and analytics an open cloud architecture and the science of customer engagement to meet ever-increasing, ever-shifting consumer interaction demands.
1: Ryan, one of the things that has always interested me has been how in the hell do people set up these behavioral experiments? So what do I mean by a behavioral experiment? Well, I think everyone will recall the Milgram experiment which is where they were looking at how people act under orders. And that's where they it was setting in a university and when this person went along to a university they were they were allocated as a teacher and in another room they had the the learner and they had a the the, the guy that was running it who was in a white coat and they had to increase the number of electric shocks depending upon whether the learner had got the answer right or wrong. And they weren't actually looking at whether the answers were right or wrong. It was, you know, would the person carry on delivering uh, electric shocks to a higher degree because they're acting under orders, basically.
0: Famous experiments.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, And it's always sort of, it's always struck me that, how do you define, how do you create a behavioral experiment? So today we are going to look at five rules for creating effective behavioral experiments. And putting this into, into the context of customer experience, you know, it could be that you want to run an experiment with your customers to see how they behave and therefore, you know, how would you go about setting that up? And we hope that these five rules will help guide you in that, in that quest. So as you're one of these guys that sets all this stuff up, I'm going to shut up for the next half hour as you tell us all the pearls of your wisdom, mate. Well, the, I don't know if it actually, will last half an hour, will it?
0: Will it or this not? is this is actually an experiment that we're running on you, Colin, to see how long <laughs> you can shut up. <laughs> now, this is a, a long-running study that I've been failing at so far.
1: <laughs> uh, can I just say it's not very long, mate. <laughs> In fact, that was probably nine seconds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I know I'm keeping track, Colin. I know. I know. Um, no, well, the the point that you raised just a second ago, I I think bears a minute or two of discussion before we get into the five rules, which is just why why should you care? Like why, you know, why should anyone care about running experiments? So the way that I would encourage people to think about it is, we have lots of ways of of knowing stuff. There's lots of different sources of data, so you can you can pull data out of your you know, point-of-sale system and and look at what sales trends are. You can pull data out of, you know, your web system and and see how, what people are doing on your website. So there's all these sources of data. You can go out and conduct surveys and ask people how they're doing. or they're, You can observe people. All of these are sources of data, and they're great. And, and, you know, you and I both have encouraged people many times to make use of as many different sources of data as they can. Can I just interrupt for a moment? Please. Well, I... I my my experiments tell me you're already two seconds overdue for interrupting. Yeah, I I'm
1: research. up to ninety seconds. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I, know I you're starting to sweat. Yeah. Just... <laughs> <laughs> so carry on. Oh, you just wanted
0: to interrupt for <laughs> just just for the sake of your own blood pressure. Okay, got yeah. it. No, I respect yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you when you think about these behavioral experiments, think about them just as another source of data, another tool that you have for finding stuff out. The strengths of experiments are, they are the gold standard for determining causality. We know if we do our experiments properly, that the actions that we took in the experiment definitely caused the outcome. And for most other sources of data, that's not true. We have to kind of infer that and we hope that it's true, but we're we're less sure on causality. So that's the strength. The weakness is a lot of these experiments kind of by their nature have to be a little bit abstracted and so that can, can reduce the generalizability of the findings. So that's a trade-off we need to make. But that's, that's where I want you to think about experiments, is it's, it's one of many ways that we have for knowing things, it has some strengths, it has some weaknesses, all that good? Yeah, I'm, Okay. so let me, let me ask you
1: a question straight away. Please. How much of this then, I just think it must be so difficult to pinpoint it down to what the actual causality is. Because, again, I reflect on many conversations I've had with people in, you know, CEOs, C-suite, where I would turn around and say, you know, if you improve the customer experience, then it will bring in this amount of revenue. Or it has brought in this amount of revenue. yeah. And they would say, yeah, but I know we run the customer experience program then, but we also, I don't know, promoted the brand well, or one of our competitors went bust, or yeah in other words they're saying yeah but you know how do you how can you pinpoint it to that one area and and the reality is, is I, I i often say well i can't actually because i can't <laughs> you know um uh, so the interesting bit is i guess my question is around and maybe this is going to come in the five rules how do you make it down to that
0: you know the the here's definitely the cause of that yeah, how do you actually establish causality for sure? It's it's a great question and it's actually it's it is a surprisingly deep and profound question, which is unusual for me, mate, I have to say. I, I know you really stumbled into that. <laughs> it, <laughs> no, it's it's a it's a great question and I I actually respect that you answer that honestly when you're confronted with that question because a lot of people would wave their hands and say, oh, "No, no, no, for sure this is what it is." And the reality is it's never for sure um like that philosophically we can never establish causality 100 percent. and here's why so i'm, I'm going to try to limit my discussion on this like this is one of the topics that i'm really interested in, in and passionate about um, but i also don't want to turn this into a a, a philosophy <laughs> lecture but it is important so th- there are three there are three things that are needed to establish causality one is temporal precedence. so in other words the cause needs to come before the effect right that has to be true if it caused it the second is correlation so the the cause and the effect need to kind of move together when i do more of a i get more of b or when i do more of a i get less of b but it always needs to be in the same right so those two things are actually fairly easy to accomplish and if you do your experiment right you can lock those down for sure you know that those two things are are for sure done the third one though is the tricky one the third thing that you need to establish causality is no better alternative explanation. Okay. And you can That's see where that nice. gets real squishy. Yeah. So we we you know the more data that we have, the more confidence that we can have in ruling out alternative explanations, but it's always contingent. It could always be that there could be a new explanation that could come up that could explain the data better tomorrow and then that would become the new causal explanation, but it's always kind of the best explanation that we've got. We can get closer and closer to confidence. But it's always open to new explanations. And that's part of what makes science interesting to me. But it can be very frustrating if you're in this suite and you need to make a decision right now.
1: Yeah. And just to build on on that, I mean, I have turned around to the senior team and gone, but look at this graph. This is when we started on proving the experience. This is the revenue line, for example, I'm thinking of one particular client in London. And, you know, whilst you, what you're telling me about the brand and various other things are, are true, look at these two lines. They're going up at the same time and at the you know the same rate. And, you know, look, there's even a little dip there because this happened or that happened. And, and now both lines again are going up. So you can show that correlation part. I think that the really interesting one is that there is, you know, no other compelling reason
0: why it happened. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's kind of a, a logical case that you need to make, right? And so the, the tighter the correlation, then the fewer alternative explanations are reasonable to, to come up with, um, right? It's unlikely to be some other outside force that, that also results in this. But the reality is we, we can't ever completely rule that out. We just try to get as as solid a case as we can build. Given all of that as kind of background, let's talk about the five rules for running good behavioral experiments. So the first thing you need to do if you want to run an experiment uh, with your business is to figure out your dependent variables. So define your metrics is the first rule. And the idea there is you need to know what you want to measure before you try to design everything else. Like what's the outcome that we want? So for business, a lot of times our our ultimate goals are, are pretty distant Like we ultimately want more profitability or we want happier customers because that'll lead to more profitability, right? But the reality is for our experiment, that may be an unreasonable metric to use, right? So if we're going to use an experiment, we're going to try something differently, you know, and then we want to look at at how that changes profitability. Well, that's going to be probably measured in some point distant from when we run the experiment. There's lots of other confounding factors that are going to change our profitability, so a lot of times we, we want a dependent measure that happens close to when we run our experiment, that's easy to measure, that maps on to what we really care about, and that's going to be sensitive enough to detect any changes. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and, and most organizations would say revenue, not profitability, uh, and would say you know net promoter or customer satisfaction or something like that.
0: Yeah. So you can think about the Potential measures that we have is existing along a continuum from kind of most concrete to most abstract or, or closest to most distant. So, you know, you might care ultimately about profitability, but that involves a lot of your costs, which are unrelated to what we're interested here on, on the customer side. So, we're going to measure revenue instead. But that also, you know, depends on a lot of factors. So, we're going to assume that happier customers lead to more revenue. So, we're going to measure customer satisfaction. Or easier to measure than that might be, you know, net promoter scores. So and so you can see where these measures are getting kind of closer and closer to what we're doing and more and more concrete, but also in a, in a sense, kind of farther and farther away from what we ultimately care about. That's a, a trade-off that we need to make when we're running our experiment. And I suggest that, that organizations figure that out first. What is it that we're going to measure? What is it that, how are we going to know whether this worked or not? Yeah. So that's our first rule, figure out what we're going to do. Now, a lot of times when people talk about experiments, they're using experiment in kind of the the loose colloquial sense of just like trying something new. Like, oh, I'm gonna experiment with a new hairstyle. That's not an experiment. In a scientific sense, there are a few things that are necessary for an experiment, and rule number two is the first of these. We need comparison conditions. So we need to establish different treatments or different conditions. So we need to divide people or things up into multiple groups, and those groups will be treated differently in some way. Does that make sense? Right. So a a control group of some description. It can be a control group. That's very common. Uh, It can also be multiple treatment groups, right? So we're going to give this market one version of the advertising and this other market a different version of the advertising. Now, we could go no advertising versus some advertising. All of those are fine, but we need some. So it can be a before and after right? That could be like our our before the treatment and after the treatment. That's not a great comparison condition because a lot of stuff changes over time, but it works. It's possible. You can do like, a, you know, an A versus a B condition where they're going to get different treatments. You can do a treatment versus control. All of those are fine, but to be an experiment, we need different conditions. So I think most
1: people would have done tests in their time. You know, well, what happens if I send this email out as opposed to that email this one's got an Im- this image on that one's got that image on you know and you know, just sort of simple ab testing for me the interesting bit is when you start considering this from a behavioral perspective and start to look into understanding the various different biases and heuristics that people are are using and taking those into account
0: as part of that control group. Does that make sense? Sure. The way that you define the groups is wide open. You've got lots of opportunity there, lots of different ways you can do it. From the perspective of running experiments, you need groups, right? You need different treatment conditions. What those treatment conditions are will vary a lot in quality, right? And it'll vary a lot depending on what you're looking to find out
1: but it's sorry let me interrupt for a moment but i think the important aspect here for the listener is if if you don't know about behavioral science you can't create an experiment to look at those biases heuristics and various different things yeah so you know you're not looking at it through the lens of behavioral science you're just effectively going well, do they like this image or do they like that image? The fact that one of the images could be, a, you know, could be encompassing loss, you know, so in other words, loss aversion is playing a big part of it because they don't know, they don't know. And therefore, when they're making an assessment, they don't really realize
0: what what the results are. Does that make sense? It does. So let, let me pause on that insight, because I I, th- I think I'll address that in rule number four. Because you're, you're absolutely right. There are different types of experiments that we can try, and some will be more insightful than others. But that's my fourth rule, and I need to get to my third rule first.
1: Okay. I've always been a man ahead of my time, so I'm, you, but I'm, you happy, have been. I'm happy to
0: wait. And more than that, you've been a man who's <laughs> interested in thwarting me at any opportunity. <laughs> no, the, the insight is really important, and I do want to address it but there's one more thing we need to get to first. So I mentioned that that there are a couple of things that you need for an experiment. You need conditions, you need comparison conditions. If you don't have those, it's not an experiment. The other thing that you need or should really, really try hard to get is randomization. So that's rule number three. Randomize people or things to those conditions if at all possible, and if it's not possible, approximate randomization as closely as you can. So when you're running experiments, randomization is like magic. It solves so many problems. So if we've got these two conditions, we've got a treatment and a control, like the the worst way to do it is to say, all right, well, we're gonna put everybody in this region in the treatment condition, and everybody in this region in the control condition, and then we'll see how, how they compare. And the problem with that is The people who live in those two regions might be fundamentally different in some way. And so whatever experiment you're running, that could be a big part of the cause of any differences that you find. So if we can randomize people individually into those different conditions, then that takes care of all kinds of potential alternative explanations. Yeah. Yeah. So this used to be really, really hard to randomly assign people to conditions with technology, it becomes really easy in many cases. So if you're running anything online, if you've got a website and you want to try different versions of it, email campaigns, all of these things, it becomes trivially easy to randomize people to. Now, if you, if you run to run a different, you know, different versions of an ad campaign on TV, that becomes much harder to randomize because now we need to work with specific markets and it can be hard to, to do that practically speaking. So anything in the physical space, it can be much harder to randomize, but you should still do the best you can. If you've got 10 stores, don't like say these five on the East Coast are going to get this treatment and these five on the West Coast. Try to mix it up. Try to have like all 10 randomly assigned to different treatment conditions. Like get as close to that as you can, practically speaking. And I guess by
1: definition, the randomization also has to be a randomization of the target audience.
0: Yes. Yeah. So you want to randomize whoever's receiving those treatments. Yes.
1: Yeah. But by definition, I guess what I'm trying to get to is going before you start this, you need to understand
0: what the segments are that you're testing this with and why have you got those segments in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. And so like, and if you're testing this on multiple segments, for example, you don't want to give one segment, one treatment and another segment, another treatment, because you've got those people in those segments because they're different. (laughs) And they want different things. So randomize within each of those segments. So you've got two segments and then two advertising treatments, for example. Don't show one to one segment and one to another segment. Randomly show both to different groups in segment A and randomly show both to different groups in segment B. Now you've got data that you can use. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense.
2: I'd like to encourage all of our listeners to visit Varent.com backslash boundless. I'll put a link in the show notes. There you'll be able to download the new engagement capacity gap study and find more resources and information. I'd also like to encourage you to go to Varent.com to register for Engage22 Better Together. A link is in the show notes. The company's annual customer engagement conference in Orlando from June 13th to June 16th. It's a premier in-person event, bringing together CX leaders, brands, industry analysts, partners, and variant experts to share insights and best practices in customer engagement. We look forward to seeing you there.
0: All right, so now we've we've figured out like what we need for experiment. We we need we need those control conditions. And, and gosh, if you can manage it at all, definitely randomized. Now let's get to the important point you raised. So rule number four, uh, I'm calling define the theory or not. So the point that you were raising, which is a really important one, uh, let me back up. It's become really popular, especially online, to do what's called A-B testing. And the idea with A-B testing is like, is what you were you were talking about earlier, which is just like, hey, let's try something and see what works, right? Let's make the color on the website, background color, but let's make it orange or let's make it blue and let's see how customers respond. Yep. Those can be, technically speaking, experiments, right? If you've, if you've got these two different control, if you've got these two different treatment conditions, right? Yellow background versus blue background and you've randomized people to the uh, seeing those two different colors, that's an experiment. And I should emphasize that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. The point that you were raising, which is an important one, is if you do just A-B testing where it's like, hey, let's see something, let's see what works, that's valuable information, right? It's better to know that the orange background results in more sales. That's useful. But without a theory, you don't know why, which makes further insights around this difficult. Sure. So A-B testing is great. Definitely do it. I would argue that a step above that is the point that you are making, which is, can we start with some science? Can we start with a theory that generates some hypotheses that we can actually test? Because if you do your A-B test and nothing works, there's no differences, then a lot of times we don't know anything further. Even if there are differences, we don't know anything further other than that just it worked. If we start off with some hypotheses, we actually can build towards a theory. We can build towards a larger understanding of what's going on. And that can in turn be more useful in the future.
1: Yeah. So so again, we've done A-B testing. And then the bit that we've been looking at from there with the knowledge of loss aversion or something like that, you can start to see that, for instance, we've done A-B testing on different titles for emails and stuff like that. And you can start to see that the, the ones that are based around the theory of loss aversion Yeah, perform better than the general ones i guess the the point is if you don't know about loss aversion then you won't know what you're looking at and you know you're gonna next time you do it you're not going to be able to turn around and go oh yeah actually the loss aversion ones work better than than these ones and you're doomed to continue to go into those same things every time aren't you
0: yeah, it's a perfect example. It's a great example. So if you're A-B testing different titles for your emails to see which one results in more click-through, you can kind of generate titles almost randomly and just kind of see what works. Then you'll know, ah, this particular title seems to work better. If you've got a theory, though, if you've got an insight that like there's this loss aversion phenomenon that, that tends to work, and you design it at two different titles where one leverages loss aversion and the other doesn't, then you're actually testing the theory, does loss aversion apply to this setting? And usually it will, but not always. That's why you're testing it. And if you find that it does, then that gives you some greater confidence and insight so that the next time, you're definitely going to include a loss aversion title when you're testing. And in the future, if you don't have time to pre-test a title, you can have some confidence in saying, well, let's, let's definitely use a loss aversion title since we don't have time to to test this because we've got this back this data before that lets us know that that works. Whereas if we're just randomly A-B testing stuff without a theory, we don't know what kind of thing generally will work in that case.
1: Let me emphasize something that you said there that that, um, not was a throwaway line, but let me emphasize what you said, which was uh, in this setting, because I think that's really important, isn't it? It doesn't mean to say that it's universally going to work. It means in this setting, in
0: these current circumstances, that will work. And I think that's important for people. Yeah, no, um, and I'm glad you emphasized it because it it was not uh, intended as just kind of a a throwaway line or an aside. I think it's actually fundamental. Like this is why we run experiments, even for well-worn theories. So loss aversion is one of the most reliable theories that I know of in all of behavioral science. It does not apply all the time. Nothing does. There's nothing that is true about human beings all the time in every situation. So that's why we test it. And and I will say that's why even a theoretical A-B testing can be useful, because it it would be useful to know, okay, this background color works in this setting. We don't know why, but it does. And so we're going to do it. So again, I'm not not discouraging A-B testing. That's great. But if you, as you said, start with some understanding of people and some kind of more general principles, we could say, no, 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 this theory seems to apply in this setting. It's such a head start. It gives you so much of a more advanced place to begin further improvements. The fifth rule is that if we want to run experiments, we need to foster a culture of experimentation. So this may seem like a strange rule for, for like a list of things we need to do to run experiments, but it it turns out to be really important. The sad truth, and I, I, I teach this to all my MBA students when I talk about experiments, the sad truth is that most experiments fail. And by that, I mean they fail to produce significantly different results. So most often when you run experiments, there's gonna be no significant difference between the treatment and the control or between treatment A and treatment B between the yellow button and the green button, most experiments fail. So I've had MBA students push back uh, when I tell them this and I, I show them data and I you know show them quotes from great experimenters who say like, look, most stuff doesn't work. And they say, well, then why are we bothering? Why are we bothering to run these experiments? The problem is the mindset shift that needs to happen is it's not the experiment's fault that it's failing, right? It's not the fact that we chose to run an experiment here that was the problem the intervention was going to fail regardless, right? So the the idea that you had that was so smart, uh, what if we change this thing? I bet that would work. That idea is what failed. If we didn't run the experiment, there's a very good chance we would just never know if it worked or not. If we run the experiment and it fails, well, now we know. We know that it didn't work in this setting, so we need to try something else. So the, the goal of a culture of an experimentation is to not necessarily celebrate when experiments fail, but to recognize that it's not the problem of the person who, who ran, ran the experiment. That person shouldn't be punished. We now know something because we did this, whereas before we wouldn't. People shouldn't be punished for uh, proposing new things that end up not working if, we're, if it's done in this kind of culture of improving.
1: Yeah, no, and I think this one is massive, particularly in business today, because people don't like failure. And there is in many organizations, too many organizations, there is not a culture of experimentation and definitely not a culture of, you know, failure is okay. As you were talking, it made me think of that that famous Edison quote. Um, You know, when he was trying to work out how to make a light bulb work and he tried a thousand things and he said, you know, it didn't fail. We now know that that one doesn't work. That experiment doesn't work. 999 things that don't work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which, Which information is valuable going forward. The reality is that because most stuff we do doesn't work if we are not honest about it if we don't experiment and actually recognize that it's not working so that we can change and improve what happens is we develop a culture where people intentionally hide things right we don't want to know if what we're doing actually is working because we know that if it doesn't work well that we're going to get punished for it and most stuff doesn't work so then our incentive is to obscure things right we're going to make things real real muddy we're going to cloud things so that Maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. We'll just kind of pretend that it does. And that's terrible, right? It'd be much better if we had this culture of let's just know and let's try things and let's take risks. And if they don't work out, we now know more than we did beforehand as opposed to, you know, you better make this work or else, you know. You're Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, Colin, that's that's it. Those are our five. So the five rules for running behavioral business experiments Number one, define your metrics, know what you're gonna measure. Number two, uh, establish comparison conditions, can be a treatment and control, can be two treatments, but you gotta have different conditions. Number three, randomize, or get as close to randomization as you possibly can. Number four, define your theory or not, uh, but know what you're testing and recognize that there are benefits to actually having a theory and getting a, a more general understanding. And then finally, number five, foster a culture of experimentation.
1: Those are really good, mate, and re- really good. And I, I really hope that helps people when they're building their, you know. In fact, I think a lot of people test things. They They certainly don't test them enough, and they certainly have an environment where it's not, you know, if the test doesn't work, it's not great news. But I think this takes it to another level, and I would encourage people to start to think about this and implement this, and if you're a leader of an organization, start to get your teams to test things and run experiments and celebrate the fact that they've failed uh, as long as they've learned, which is the key. So uh, we hope that's been of use and we look forward to talking to you next week. Cheers.
0: This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton, but it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.